As we continue through our sermon series looking at the book of Leviticus, we come to a passage that contains some very famous words. And I don't say famous lightly. I can promise that even if you've never been in church before, you have heard some of these words this morning. But how the Bible uses these words is probably a little different than you would expect. It might surprise you even. But I think for our perf- it's perfect for our cultural moment, where we are at right now as a people. So as we read Leviticus 24, I want you to listen and see if you can pick out these very famous words. Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. And his mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God." So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us. Oh God, we come to you this morning, to your word, and we have a story recorded for us that can be troubling, confusing perhaps even familiar to the point where it seems unimportant. And so I ask that you would send your spirit to us this morning. Help us to hear the words of life. Help us to sense you, to be connected to you through your word. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Some of the greatest literary and cinematic masterpieces follow the theme of revenge. Think about it. The Count of Monte Cristo, Braveheart, Gladiator, John Wick. That last one was a joke. Um, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that these masterpieces were created in order to get us to ask the question, how should we respond to people who have wronged us? That's a question I think I will ask you directly. How do you treat people who have wronged you, who have made fun of you behind your back, who have left you out or marginalized you, maybe physically and emotionally hurt you? 
As I thought about those questions, I was filled with two different feelings, both pride and guilt. Pride in the sense of thinking about times in my life where someone had hurt me and I hadn't just let them walk all over me. I stood up for myself. I did something about it. And yet somehow also guilt, knowing that my desire for justice has led me to do and say things that went too far. Sadly, I think most of us can think of instances where our reaction to offenses went too far and we really hurt someone. This passage from Leviticus is only the second recorded story or narrative in the entire book. Only the second. The first was an account of two priests who failed to do what they were supposed to do. And here in this passage, we have a citizen, not a priest, who is not doing what they were supposed to do. And this section actually has two different parts. There's the story itself, where people don't exactly know how to respond to this man's offense. And then the second part, which is a set of principles that God delivers as judge over the nation, over this particular situation, to Moses. And those particular rules are preserved for the people so that generation after generation would know how to respond to this particular offense. And these two sections work together. You need one to understand the other. They form what we would call case law not just rules and regulations, but also the example behind which the regulations were given. Now, considering this is case law, it is set in its particular history, and it might seem like laws and principles given from a historical context are very separate from us. This is not ancient Israel. We do not have the same laws. Many of the things that we've seen in the book of Leviticus are personal laws. They are ritual, ceremonial laws, but here what we have are civil laws. So this doesn't apply to us, right? Wrong. As we look through these two sections and how they talk to and inform each other, what we're going to see is that this reveals something to us about who God is and how He treats us. And we're going to see it in three different parts. Principles of justice. Justice has been done And compassion is godly. Three different things, starting with principles of justice. Now, there are two main principles that are delivered in this section that God establishes for Israel to follow going forward. The first is that a punishment cannot exceed the crime. The second is that all people, regardless of national, social, or ethnic status, should be treated equally. And we're going to look at each of these individually. The first, punishment cannot exceed the crime. Now, that's a funny way to say it, but that's exactly what those famous words, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, mean. It's about equal justice, what we would call in Latin lex talionis. What has been done to you is the extent to which justice can be repaid equal reciprocity. God establishes this rule here because sin often twists our desire for justice into revenge. Please hear me when I say a desire for justice is not wrong. 
In fact, the desire for justice in us comes from the image of God within us. We long for things to be right, for people and ourselves to be treated correctly. And when that is not present, when things have gone wrong, a desire to see justice done is a desire to see God righting wrongs. But sin twists that desire for justice into revenge. Justice can escalate indiscriminately to the point where things get out of control. I mean, think about every single practical joke scenario that you've ever heard. Oh, you saran wrapped the toilet? Or I'm going to switch the toothpaste out for mayonnaise. You switch the toothpaste out for mayonnaise? Well, then I'm going to saran wrap your car shut. Yeah, well, I'm going to pour sugar in your gas tank, right? Out of control. Things just escalate. And when we're talking about actual crimes, actual offenses and pain that's delivered, things need to be kept in check because an escalation could mean death. There must be a check in our drive for justice. We all understand this. In fact, we saw this on display March 27th of this year. You probably have seen one of the many video recordings, or perhaps you are watching live, as Oscar host Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. And her husband, Will, jumped up on stage, walked up to him in the middle of the broadcast, and slapped him in the face. The world was buzzing about what had happened. But what surprised me the most, and as I've talked to other people, surprised many folks, is there wasn't a consensus about his behavior. Some people were happy. They were clapping and cheering him on for defending his wife. Some people laughed in the audience, thought it was some kind of stunt. Others were appalled at what he had done and were concerned about what it would mean for his fans, for people watching, what they might take away from it. I think what really stuck out to me was an interview I saw the next day with actor Jim Carrey, and he put it very simply. He was disturbed. He was disgusted by the behavior, but what he said was, you can't just jump on stage and slap somebody because they said words. He hit the nail on the head. The reaction didn't fit the offense. It's for that exact reason that God limits the sin-impacted drive for justice by saying, punishment must fit crime. Now hear me, this isn't unique to Israel. This was a common principle in the ancient world. Most of you have heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth from Hammurabi's code, which was written far before the time of ancient Israel. But here's the key. In almost all of those ancient civilizations where a law of equal reciprocity was on the books, it was only used for offenses between people of the same status. So foreigners, the poor, the marginalized, they weren't given the same rights. God deals with that in His kingdom as well. This is our second principle of justice. Twice in the passage, we see God say the foreigners and the natives are treated equally. As it goes for the natives, so shall it be for the foreigner. This is a remarkable principle of justice. The fact that in God's kingdom there should be no difference of treatment between full-blooded Jews and outsiders shows a sensitivity and concern for all people not found in other cultures. Now remember, all the laws and codes of Leviticus, 
were given to God's people in order to set them apart, to help them become and to show forth what was different about them than the other nations. The laws made them less like other nations and more like God. Equal standing in the eyes of the judicial system for the socially and ethnically marginalized points out God's own concern for those people. God delivers this principle because of the situation in which the man who has offended was not a full-blooded Jew. We see that his mother was Jewish, but his father was an Egyptian, and heritage resided in the paternal line. So this man in his life was almost certainly looked down upon, marginalized, treated differently because he was a foreigner. He was an outsider. And so people might have been tempted to just exact justice in the moment, to stone him, to punish him. But that's not what happens. They're not sure because he doesn't quite fit. So they put him in custody until God can explain how this man should be handled. He was unequal in the eyes of people, but to the eyes of God, he was the same. That's why we see this second principle at work in the story. But you know, as we read it, it actually seems like maybe that first principle, punishment can't exceed crime, isn't there. It seems like God's delivering a punishment of stoning goes a little bit above and beyond saying some bad words, which is why we need to trust justice has been done. Our second point, justice has been done. We need to believe that the offense was far more severe than it seems on the surface. It's not as though the man was in a fight with this other Jewish man and he simply said, oh my God, or even GD, like most people in our culture seem to say without any hesitation. This isn't a mere slip of the tongue, but the Hebrew words recorded for us tell us that with hate in his heart, he esteemed God lightly and then cursed God. Two very, very, very wrong things. That's probably why this story falls here in the midst of these passages, because the holiness code and the cleanliness code, all the laws that we've been looking at in Leviticus, are all rhythms and guidelines to help Israel esteem God appropriately, to esteem Him highly. But it still seems like this might just be a surface infraction. Okay, so this guy said something, that doesn't seem too bad. Did God just get his feelings hurt and so pronounce a punishment of death? No, he didn't. This is far more than a surface issue. A little while ago, I went to the doctor to have a mole removed from my back. I wasn't concerned about it. I'd had it most of my life, but it was kind of annoying, made me feel self-conscious, And it kind of got aggravated every now and then when I was working out at the gym. And as I sat down with the doctor, I explained it to him. I have no health concern with this. It's just annoying. I would like it removed. And he said, I understand. I know that you don't like having it. It makes you feel like people are looking at you. But here's the deal. Whenever we remove something, we're going to send it to the lab for a biopsy. Because as much as it might seem like it's just on the surface, there could be a deeper issue. This could be cancerous. And that would change how we approach the situation. Now, thankfully, 
when they sent it to the lab for biopsy, there was nothing wrong with it, and it was just a mole. But his response to how to deal with this surface issue in my mind communicated that there could be something deeper going on. And that's what we see here from the offense of the Jewish woman's son. God delivers a sentence equal to treason. Treason is a capital crime. And for whatever reason, what we see is that God says, this offense is treasonous. And the, the, the communication of God is kept so that future generations of judges could see actions and determine whether or not they are treasonous. Now, I don't say treasonous lightly. One of the commentators on this passage communicated his actions as treasonous, and that really helped me understand the seriousness of it. Because treason is not just an offense to the king, it's also, like cancer can be, dangerous to the whole body. And so, when this man's actions come out, God is protecting His people from this form of cancer invading the rest of the community. This is a serious offense. One of the other commentators I read put it this way, uh, talking about the man's guilt. Rejecting our Maker is also forfeiting the life that He has granted to us. See, this is where you and I come in. We're not there in ancient Israel. As much as this scenario is unique and particular to the history that it's set in, we're also talking about the same king and the same judge who deals with our actions and our reactions. To reject our maker is to forfeit the life that he has granted us. Now, perhaps you've never directly cursed God, but I can confess that I often esteem Him too lightly. I choose to follow other advice. I choose to turn away and do the things He tells us not to do. I choose often not to do the good things He tells us to do. And I know that you and I are in the same boat. Treason is a capital offense, and we are traitors. Especially if you are a Christian, because as Bob said earlier, you're bearing the name of Christ, which means that if you behave in life a certain way, you are either upholding His image, the family name, His reputation, or you are slandering and demeaning and undermining the name of the King. A long time ago, I remember Nicole making a comment about not wanting to put one of those Jesus fish stickers on the back of our car. She said, you never know what thing we're going to do while we're driving, and it's not accurately going to represent the fish on the back of the car. See, we understand this. If we call ourselves by a name, we should live up to that name. You and I consistently do not. We should be stoned. We are under the penalty of death. But here's the thing about justice in God's kingdom. Because of His mercy and His grace alone, justice is not done upon us, the offenders, but instead He takes it upon Himself. Jesus takes our place. The penalty of our sin He took on the cross. He bears the weight of our guilt, and in exchange, we receive the righteousness 
the favor that he earned. That is justice in God's kingdom. That is grace, that is mercy, that is compassion. And compassion is godly. Our last point, compassion is godly. Now, this is the gospel of the Christian faith, the headline, the everything about it, that God's mercy and grace means you don't get the penalty you deserve and you get the righteousness you don't deserve by trusting in Jesus in His death and resurrection you receive the compassion and forgiveness of God. And yet, because of the way that sin twists and corrupts our hearts, because of the selfishness peddled by our culture, a craving for immediate revenge creeps in. And so our reactions to people who have offended us are still driven by exacting justice and getting revenge. It reminds me of a story that Jesus told in Matthew 18 about a servant who owed a king a massive debt. The king called him in, and the man begged for forgiveness, knowing he could never repay this debt. The king had mercy on him and forgave the servant. But on his way out of the castle, the servant saw his friend, who owed him just a few dollars, asked for the money back. The friend said, will you forgive me? I don't have the money And the servant chose instead to imprison his friend until he could pay the few dollars back. That's my heart. That's how I live often. Even though I know I've been forgiven such a great debt, I still choose to crave justice from other people when they have offended me. Is that you? Is that how your heart works? Well, we're in good company. Because the same thing happened in Israel. Over generations, this case law recorded for the use of civil magistrates and judges for the future generations began to be the governor through which individuals saw their own actions towards others. When they had been harmed, they got revenge immediately, as long as it followed this law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I didn't go overboard. Yeah, what you said hurt me, but guess what? It was slanderous. And it was worth $20 million for the thing you said me. So I'm going to take it back right now. Time and time again, people used this law in order to exact revenge on those who had harmed them. But that's not what this law is about. Jesus explains this in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, uh, 38, excuse me. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He quotes Leviticus here. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In our day and age, in our culture, these directions of Jesus sound absolutely absurd. If someone hits me, I should turn and let him hit me again. If he tries to sue me to take my tunic, which I don't have, I should let him have my cloak, which I also don't have. This is a weak attitude. This is inexcusable. 
Have some pride in yourself. Stand up for yourself. No, this is compassion. This is godly. Because in the face of our treason and our abandonment and our esteeming God lightly, He did not dole out punishment upon us, but took it on Himself. He absorbed our offense, and He turned the other cheek to also absorb our punishment as well. And it's that same compassion, that same mercy that we are called to exude in our lives. To those who have been forgiven much, much will be forgiven. See, just as the legal proceedings of Israel were created to set them apart from all the other nations, so too our attitude towards those who revile us, who harm us, who offend us, who belittle us, set us apart from the rest of the world. We are called to recognize that justice is not ours to carry out, just as justice was not ours to push off. But God, who took it on Himself, is the one who will put justice in its proper place. This is the difference between revenge, action, and mercy. And you know, I think it's easy for us to, to think about revenge and go, you know what, I've never, I've never actually caused any kind of pain to anybody else. When I'm hurt, I don't do anything in return. I'm not really that bad. But here's the reality. We do judge others, and we do condemn them in our hearts and hold grudges against people. I was at a church planning conference a while ago, and one of the church planners' wives said this that I would never forget. Anger can be hot or it can be cold. Both are violent and both can kill. We judge others in our hearts, even if our lips say, I forgive you, and we hold grudges, and we don't talk to them, and we cut people out, and it is all an act of justice and revenge. And as much as those lead good stories in our culture, stories of forgiveness are more powerful and life-changing. Emmanuel is a documentary released in 2018, uh, which has some pretty big-name celebrity producers attached to it, but it's all about the families of the nine victims of the uh, hate crime where people were shot in South Carolina by a white supremacist. You may have heard of that story. We've used it as an illustration before. But if you haven't, 48 hours after a young man shot nine people in a Bible study, 33 of their family members stood in arraignment proceedings and one by one looked him in the eye and forgave him. And in this documentary, Chris Singleton, whose mother was murdered, talks about the fact that he wasn't in the courtroom that day. He was actually at a baseball game. But he was following all of the news reports of this amazing act of forgiveness And he knew, sitting in that seat at the baseball game, that he too was called to forgive this man who had killed his mother. And he says, I never thought I would ever be able to get to that place. The narrative of forgiveness, he says, is all about submitting. And it means that you are weak, or at least people will think that. But we have realized 
that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes more courage to forgive than it does to say, I am just going to be upset about this forever. I think this is why it's so hard for us to choose forgiveness over revenge, forgiveness over justice, because it is so much harder. But the beauty of following Jesus is that through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, we are given supernatural strength to forgive, to let go of the offense, to not count it against the offender, because that's exactly what was done for us. When God sees you, if you are in Jesus, He does not see the traitor. He sees His child. And that is what strengthens us to choose to see others, not as offenders, but brothers and sisters. That's the freedom that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, as usual, when we see Your Word, we know that these things are good and right, and yet they are so hard for us. We need You to give us strength, to spur us on to let go of offense, to forgive others, to be able to extend forgiveness just as it has been extended to us. Help us to live out of the forgiveness and new life purchased for us by Jesus on the cross. Help us to be changed by His resurrection. We pray in His mighty name. Amen.